You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. It's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Sunit Shawan, Professor in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine, the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences at the University of Texas Health Science Center, on behalf of his co-authors to review their study, False Alarms, Pseudoepidemics, and Reality, a case study with American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists practice bulletins. In determining management of clinical care, Clinical investigation works to determine an association of a risk factor or a benefit of an intervention to certain clinical circumstances. These associations are often measured by relative risk or odds ratios, which are then interpreted as being significantly associated with the risk factor or outcome of interest. Medical societies will then use this information to develop clinical guidelines or best practice opinions. Correct interpretation of these findings are important in developing such guidelines to be free of bias and avoid overreaching conclusions. In this study, the authors review the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology practice bulletins to determine the frequency with which odds ratios or relative risks are presented in these guidelines in the zone of potential bias, the likelihood that such representation leads to possible bias in recommendations, and are their differences in frequency of such interpretations between obstetric and gynecologic guidelines. The authors reviewed 79 publications over 15 years. 22% of the practice bulletins had 44 statements using odds ratios, of which 41% were in the zone of potential bias, while 28% had 67 statements using relative risk, with 58% in the range of potential bias. Most of the reported odds ratios and relative risks, 75 and 86% respectively, did not include the null in the 95% confidence interval, leading the authors to be concerned that the reader may interpret these estimates as being clinically significant. The authors do note that the reported odds ratios did not result in recommendations in 84% of the cases, while 77% of the relative risks also did not lead to a recommendation. Only 1-2% to of overall recommendations in the practice bulletins were linked to odds ratios or relative risks. Overall, the authors conclude that the lack of linking of odds ratios or relative risks with recommendations is concerning and that reporting of odds ratios or relative risks with recommendations are important to allow the reader to determine if there is potential bias in the society's recommendations. Dr. Shohan, thank you very much for joining us today to discuss your findings from your group's study. Thank you. It's a pleasure and it's a privilege. Can you describe what some of the motivations your group had for conducting this study? Actually, we had just read the wonderful publication in the Green Journal by Dr. Grimes and Dr. Schultz. It was entitled False Alarms and Pseudoepidemic, the Limitations of Observational Epidemiology. I was quite intrigued by his assertion, and one of our wonderful residents at Norfolk wanted a senior thesis project, so it was just serendipity that I read an article which I thought would be wonderfully applicable to ACOS practice bulletin. I'm still of the belief that ACOS practice bulletins are the most influential publications for OBGYN in the United States. 
So looking at Dr. Grimes' paper in application to the practice bulletins, what was your specific aim that you were trying to address by applying Dr. Grimes' insight to the practice bulletins? As you know, the background of this wonderful commentary by Dr. Grimes and Schultz is based on observational study, there are a lot of false alarms and they were very specific and objective that the relative risk has to exceed 2 to 3 and in odds ratio case 3 to 4, otherwise there may be false alarm and we should be suspect of any association. So we thought we would look at all practice bulletins which were available to us at that time, which was March of 2014, and just search for every practice bulletin which was published and available at that time and look at the frequency which odds ratio and relative risk are in the zone of potential bias or interest and then the likelihood of false alarm and then to compare how many of these relative risk odds ratio lead to the recommendations made by ACOG in their practice bulletin. How do you define the false alarms and what are some of the implications for the practitioner or the public for these false alarms? According to the author's commentary, odds ratio between 0.33 and 3.0, the bias, hence the false alarm, and if the relative risk is between 0.5 and 2.0, then it could also be a false alarm. The authors mention or what we learned from them is when the results are in this zone of bias, false alarms that they shouldn't be attributed to causal association and they should not be considered credible. We have not known that in our clinical practice, so we sought to look at how many of the citations of odds ratio are in zone of bias. Can you briefly review what some of the differences are in odds ratios and relative risks? How do you use an odds ratio and a relative risk to look at cause or clinical care? As most of the listeners know, odds ratio is a measure that we use with case control studies and relative risk is used with cohort or randomized clinical trials. And relative risk provides a better or truer estimate of risk than case control study can provide because of the inherent bias in the design. So the way to look at it, if the relative risk is 5, then the outcome is 5 times more common in those who are exposed relative to those who are unexposed. Kindly, both myself and the clinicians I work with and with ACOG, we don't use the magnitude of odds ratio relative risk to guide clinical care as we should, but this commentary, Grimes and Schultz, does give us pause and would at least make me want to use the magnitude of the odds ratio and relative risk in guiding our practice. We're focusing on this zone of potential bias for odds ratio and relative risk. Um, we talked a little bit about how we use odds ratio and relative risk for implications in interpreting the medical literature and providing clinical care. Can you sort of compare and contrast what the zone of potential bias and the zone of potential interest means and how you interpret those? So zone of potential interest, just to keep it in your the definition by the authors were odds ratio less than 0.25 or more than 4 and relative risk was less than 0.3 or more than 3. So if 
uh, findings, publication, or recommendations are in zone of interest, then we should have greater interest to use it clinically more often than if they were in potential bias. But the authors of the commentary do caution that it is feasible that one can have zone of interest, and despite that there have been large bias, they actually cited surprisingly that there have been publications relative to 10 and 27, which were subsequently shown to be uh, misguided. I think the plausibility, the biological plausibility, should be taken into account. But my hope is that instead of clinicians dissecting each study in the video clinical practice, it would be the societies of national guidelines who would do that and bring the findings the zone of potential interest to the reader's attention. I think we're all always taught that when we look at an odds ratio and a relative risk, we're supposed to look at the confidence interval, the 95% confidence interval, and we're taught that if it doesn't include one or the null, then it's significant. Sometimes we call that statistically significant. How does that not crossing one compare to this zone of potential bias, and maybe you can address what the difference is in statistically significant and maybe clinically significant? The 95% interval includes the null or one, then usually don't even accept the finding or we don't implement the findings of the recommendation in clinical practice. So if it includes zone of null, but it's not statistically significant, we most often do not utilize that in clinical practice or make recommendations based on that. If it does not, then what I have learned from this exercise is then we should look if it is clinically or statistically significant, is it possible it's in the zone of bias? If it is, then we should be suspect and not hurry and accept the conclusion of studies, and we should pause for additional studies and perhaps meta-analysis to see if the heart or relative risk becomes in zone of interest. So that's how I would use it. Includes no, we don't use it. If it is significant, then consider whether it's in zone of bias and wait till it's in zone of interest before we jump at it. And other thing I would like to add is just because it is statistically significant, that often doesn't mean that it's clinically practical or useful. So we still have to take that into account that just significance alone doesn't mean that it will translate well into clinical practice what you and your authors are examining as well as what Dr. Grimes pointed out is that these zone of potential biases in looking at literature have a higher chance that repeated studies don't have the same consistent relative risk or odds ratio that subsequent well-designed clinical trials compared to epidemiologic studies will show a different finding than what may be in studies that report this zone of potential bias, thus making the reader need to really caution these very small relative risk or odds ratios. That's a very nice summary, and I, too, would caution the reader that just as the finding is positive doesn't mean that we should accept it unless it's in zone of bias, even then to pause the biological plausibility and where their bias is. And it's my hope that the ACOG and their wonderful job of publishing practice bulletin will take the onus to do that in future. So we've talked about the odds ratios and relative risks in the zone of bias. Um, specifically in your study, what did you find as your major findings as these relate to the ACOG practice bulletins? 
There were three major findings. At the time when we started this study in March 2014, there were 79 practice bulletins available to clinicians so which were active. And out of those 79, only 22% even used odds ratio of relative risk. For odds ratio, there were only 44 statements which mentioned the word odds ratio in 79 practice bulletins. And 40% of those statements were in zone of bias but majority of 54% were in potential interest. Surprisingly, 84% of the statements which mentioned odds ratio in the text of the practice bulletin did not meet an actual recommendation by APOC. So that was the first finding. Our second finding was that in only 28% of practice bulletins was the word relative risk mentioned and there were only 67 statements which used the word relative risk. When a relative risk was mentioned, majority or 58% were in the zone of bias and a small percentage or 28% were in zone of interest. In 73 or 3 out of 4 cases when relative risk was cited, it did not lead to any ACOP practice bulletin recommendation. Third and perhaps the most important finding was that in 79 practice bulletin, ACOP made 733 recommendations and among them only 1 and 2% quoted oscillation relative risk respectively. The majority of the time, the recommendations in the text do not provide any oscillation relative risk for the readers or clinical researchers to assess the strength of the association and whether the oscillation relative risk lies in the zone of interest for bias without going to the actual publication. So those were our three major findings. If researchers rely on things like odds ratio and relative risk in helping interpret their study findings, why do you think that there's such a lack of association with reporting of odds ratios and relative risks and linking those to recommendations in the practice bulletins? That's an interesting question. I think perhaps other clinicians and the writers of the national guidelines were not aware of what Dr. Glantz and Dr. Shulkway nicely called false alarms and pseudoepidemics. At least I wasn't aware that one can have a positive significant finding and yet it still be in zone of bias. That may be the simplest explanation, but I honestly don't know why, but it is my hope that in future, not only ACOG, but other national guidelines which write for OBGYN in other countries like Canada, Ireland, England, Australia, New Zealand, they would all use or at least decipher the zone of interest for the zone of bias in making recommendations. Obviously, you didn't study the whys. That's going to be a lot more difficult to do. But one reason you think there may be this lack of association with odds ratios and relative risks is sort of a limitations in understanding or changes in understanding of how we interpret those odds ratios. These are obviously written over a, a relatively long period of time. Do you think some other explanations like lack of available data or a paucity of high-quality data leads these authors to make recommendations that they don't feel like they can link to good odds ratios? ACOP practice bulletin, when we concluded it had been published over 15 years at that time, I think. So it could be that the publications which were cited were even older than them, and at that time this false alarm or pseudo-epidemics was not well acknowledged by investigators, the journal editors, and others, and we accepted it. But I think henceforth, now that it's been brought to our attention, I think we should be more cognizant. And I think as ACOG does more and more practice bulletin as well as other national guidelines, it's my hope that they would take this commentary by Dr. Grant's interpreter. 
I think that's a great suggestion for how we should maybe go forward in doing these guidelines. Do you have other recommendations for how authors or societies who create guidelines use sort of odds ratios or relative risks to create these guidelines and how they can prevent these false alarms? One of my hope as a reader is that the national guideline, when they make the recommendation, actually in the recommendation provides the odds ratio and the relative risk. The clinician can see the strength of the association and whether it's in zone of interest or bias. It's my hope in future that initially the authors who have a finding in the zone of bias, let's say, would not be overly enthusiastic trumpet their positive finding and they should be cautious in interpreting their positive finding or clinically or statistically significant finding fits in zone of bias. Secondly, it's my hope that the reviewers of publication and the editors of journals will keep the zone of bias versus interest in mind. Lastly, it's my hope that the members of society which write practice bulletins would keep this in mind and keep this transparent. It's my hope in the actual recommendation that the national guidelines would cite the relative risk and odds ratio so we as the readers can be more familiar with them and we can actually see the magnitude of the association between exposure or non-exposure between those treated versus not treated. And I think eventually we all, from clinical researchers to the editors to the writers of guidelines and clinicians in practice, will be more cognizant of this false alarm that the brands and Dr. Schultz so nicely brought to our attention. What, if any, other guidelines that are available to help clinicians design studies and readers and journal editors to use to help them with correct interpretation of things like odds ratios and relative risks in studies? As you know, so for randomized trial, being compliant with consort guidelines is a must. With other studies, or when people are finding association or saying that A causes B, I think Dr. Hill's commentary in the British Journal is still a must-read. It's a known publication, but I find it fascinating about the nine criteria needed to link A. And whenever you say A causes B, and then the stroke guideline should also be used whenever applicable by researchers. Those sound like really good guidelines that, you know, they may not change the magnitude of the odds ratio, but may help the reader and the editors feel that the odds ratio that does come up is likely to be truly representative of true finding, and then it would be up to the reader or the society or the patient to determine the magnitude of the effect of that risk or treatment. But those things, agree, may help us interpret the validity of that finding. How would you recommend a clinician who, as Dr. Grimes points out, may not be an amazing robotic surgeon, but in becoming a robotic surgeon has not spent hours over statistics books to really interpret odds ratios. What would be some advice that you would give to these practicing clinicians on how you can use this information in counseling patients and determining clinical care sort of in things that don't have a societal guideline? So one thing I would do, and if I could refer to the readers, to the Times and Schultz article, and they have two wonderful figures, three, uh, for example, gives you the range of potential bias with odds ratio in figure four, and gives you the zone of potential bias or interest with relative risk. 
we are accustomed to taking the favorite table from our favorite publication and putting it on the billboard and here where we take your patients. I would do the similar thing with figure three and figure four of Grimes and Scholl's article because it's hard to remember for odds ratio what is in potential bias or interest compared to relative it. And as they are leaving, I would honestly encourage and promise to do it myself is keep this figure in front of us and when we are reading or coming through our favorite journal, keep in mind what is in potential interest to bias with relative risk and odds ratio. And if it isn't biased, not to jump or implement the new intervention or the latest finding into practice or giving guidance to our wonderful woman we take care of. So what's next for your group? Does your group have plans for a further study in this area or what would you suggest a young up-and-coming researcher do in this area of interest? One thing we are hoping to do and one of our readers welcome to beat us to the punch is to take the similar methodology we did with APOS practice bulletin but apply to guidelines from Canada called Society of Gynecology, SOGC, as well as Royal College of OBGYN or RCOG Green Guidelines. Ireland also has guidelines in OBGYN as does Australia and New Zealand. So the ultimate paper could be compare the five national guidelines in OBGYN and see the frequency of odds ratio relative risk used and how often in each of the country's guidelines are they in the zone of interest or versus zone of bias. And I think that would be a wonderful paper and I hope you know, some of my junior faculty or fellows will do it. If not, at least one of the readers will take a step on it. Dr. Schoen, any other comments that you would like to make about your paper or any highlights that we haven't discussed today? I would encourage the readers to honestly read this our paper and not to forget Grimes and Schultz's paper. I think it's a wonderful publication. I learned a lot and opened my eyes in ways that a lot of other publications don't. And because it's such a paradigm shift, I would ask especially the young investigators or the young clinician who's reading literature on a regular basis to keep Dr. Grimes and Dr. Schultz's finding or their commentary in mind when we read it. I definitely do, and I think I'm better because of this, and I hope others do too. Dr. Schoen, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on your manuscript, and I wish you the best in the future as you continue down this area of interest. Thank you, Kenny, and I want to thank my co-authors for putting up with me for almost a year and <laughs> making this publication feasible. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.